Welcome to Telling the Truth, and today I have with me Richard Maddox, who is a writer of Enlightenment novels, who's striving to express the wisdom of enlightened masters through fiction. Richard, thank you for being on with me today. Thank you for having me, Nathaniel. Uh, it's a pleasure. How you doing? Great. How about you? Oh, lots to be grateful for, and I'm doing good. Doing some good creative work over here inside of a, a little bit more solitude than usual. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? I think you, you and I are a pair of, of people who tend to prefer and have a lot of solitude for ourselves, which was probably increased of late, but how, how's yeah. things? Yeah, I like to say I was a hermit before it became a government mandate. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, very, very good. But I think some of the people that were more extroverted are probably challenged a little bit. I see a lot of uh, people kind of beating, beating against their walls when I talk to them online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do feel for folks. And I will say one thing I'm very grateful for in the space of this lockdown is that I have met deep, interesting, creative souls like you that I can have conversations with via the internet. I can get online or I can pick up the phone and I can talk to another person such as yourself who is coming from a deep place, who has a perspective that's interesting and that is one thing that's really stood out for me is my goodness, t having friends that are worth talking to is, is such a blessing, especially at a time like this. It is. And I think it's, it's also showing society the importance of a lot of stuff that's typically undervalued. Artists are kind of an afterthought in a typical capitalist society. But now when everybody's locked in their homes, I think if they didn't have movies and books and music and paintings and things to capture their interest through creativity, um, they'd be at a loss. So it's, there's many, I think, mm -hmm. positive things about the pandemic, um, cleaning up the climate, uh, bringing families together, teaching people that they can work from home and pollute less. Uh, and the, <clears throat> the value, as I said, of people, not only creatives, but also minimum wage people that are out there on the front lines, keeping the, keeping the show going. Yes. Yes, indeed. It's funny, I was just reminded that I forget his name. It was either Bob Iger or whomever else is in charge of Disney now, the massive entertainment world behemoth. And he said, when they do send their people back to work, they're going to have a lot less office space. So it's as though even these really huge concerns like Disney realized we didn't need to have people on our premises nearly as much. Like you said, a lot of good creative work, including when somebody has a corporate job, can be done from home. And what I like about that is if a person's in his home doing his creative profession, 
like whether he's a writer as you are a musician like I am or what have you, we can still be a contribution. We can still make our work available to the public, but we also get to inside of our own homes, create a way of life that really works for us as opposed to having to eight hours a day, march to the beat of the corporate drum and to do everything inside of that sort of artificially invented world. Exactly. And I think one of the things it's showing is what you and I and many people already know is that creativity is done from silence. So the great artists go into themselves and begin to create from that deep silent space within. So on a lesser level, even people that aren't artists, but are creating something in business on on the level that they're working on, I think are finding that being quiet in their home by themselves I used to find when I was in business that just working out of my house, I got three times as much done on the practical level. Nobody comes mm. into your office every five minutes. But uh, on a deeper level, uh, your creativity, your, your clear thoughts uh, originate from that silence. So once you tune down the noise in the environment, the quality of your inspiration rises. Wow, man, that's such a such a thing to see. And it's interesting that you said that. Even from the corporate standpoint, even before your day's work was to write another page or another short story or to continue a novel, but even when in a corporate environment, that you could be that much more productive from home. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, and I think it's, I think a lot of people are discovering that it's when you don't have distractions and you focus down on what you're doing. You're amazed by how much time you waste uh, in an office environment. I mean, it's not just chit-chatting, but it's busy work, uh, paperwork, email, stuff that you know isn't really necessary, uh, taking too long for lunch, all that kind of stuff. So uh, corporations may, uh, for their own perverse reasons, start to see that um, not only do they save on the office space and then the environment's better because of less smog, but that they're actually getting more out of people. Uh, and then bringing them together as they can uh, electronically on the internet as the, as is necessary. Yes. 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 And I was also thinking of how that is, you could say it's an inherently pro-family position to allow people to work from home more or as much as possible, because then if they do have kids or maybe elderly parents or simply the desire to connect with a loved one and to live on a daily basis with and near the people they love, then they don't necessarily have to commute two hours out of the house every day, which two hours, of course, can neither be spent with the family nor with the employer. That's just time that's kind of burnt from a social context. And now that time can be folded right back into into life, whether that time is going to be spent with the people I love or doing something I love or whatever it is I wanted to do around the house. It just seems to me, in fact, like you said, even from a business standpoint, just a way more efficient way of life. Yeah, like my son uh, just had a, a child, their first child, he and his wife, and they're both working out of the house. And the child was going to have to go to daycare, but now they're, he's seeing his parents like all the time during the day, seven days a week, they're getting as much done as they ever did when they were going into the office. And the family is much more bonded. The child at a critical age is getting all that parental attention, even if it's in spurts or only one at a time. 
you know, one could take lunch one time, one could take lunch another time, and suddenly you've got two hours of quality time with the child. So I think it's teaching us, mm-hmm. it's nature's way of teaching us a lot of things that we would have been just too stuck in our ways to learn had we not uh, been pushed up against the wall with this virus. Mm. And I love that about your grandson. That just really warms my heart because I do know, having grown up in Silicon Valley, you obviously know plenty about Silicon Valley yourself. The way in which that environment has the capacity to deprioritize family and deprioritize children in favor of being in service to the almighty dollar, being in service to the corporate master, being in service to the bottom line, to the next quarterly, whatever. And all of that doesn't need to, it turns out, doesn't need to overshadow that people can still be with their kids and with their spouses. Like you said, they're both actually productive. Your son is still getting his work done. His wife's still getting her work done, but they also have more time with their child, which is obviously that's, that's of inestimable value. If a father and a mother can spend more time with their baby, that, that obviously trumps bottom line concern, but it so happens they still get to be productive also. So we got our, we got our, our holistic support of life. And it so happens that we don't have to be these out of balanced chicken with our heads cut off kind of moronic, you know, approach to business people. We can, we can in fact embrace our loved ones and time with them while also being productive members of society while also earning the money that we need to earn. Yeah. And if you think about it from a macro perspective, it's as though the pandemic has said, you're completely externally oriented. You're completely groupthink oriented. I'm going to force you, if you don't have a family, I'm going to force you into complete privacy, which is uh, a turning inward towards consciousness, which um, everyone who's investigated consciousness knows that's where all progress begins from is inside of yourself. Uh, And uh, even those who have a family, it's saying you're going to be turned inside yourself and then your next level of awareness is going to be your family. So it's as though nature is saying to us this old modality of like a factory where we all had to get together on the assembly line and build something. And we just continued that over into intellectual work where we're going to put 5,000 people in a building at Facebook and build something um, is not Mm -hmm. necessary. And in fact, is destructive to things like individual development and family development <clears throat> which is the kind of inverted hierarchy of, of how life should be. Um, it's, again, a, a stroke, I believe, of nature's supporting us, pointing us, uh, using pain, uh, as spirituality often does, to uh, enforce the lesson of, of life affirmation, like to, to put you in the direction that you have to be pushed uh, to do the right thing. Mm, man, I love that. So what you said reminded me of a corollary, and it was an insight that I had some years back, probably 2012 was when this really started to be incredibly clear to me, because it was a time when I decided to re-enter the world of higher education, not as a teacher only. I had been doing guest teaching at one university or another on and off for years while working as a private voice teacher, as I still do. But when I was looking at re-entering as a student, 
to finish out some more degrees for myself, I was, as you might imagine, sort of confronted by the ridiculously high cost of that. And because I am by disposition, a fiscally responsible kind of person, and I attempt to move into life in a responsible way around resources, I couldn't help but analyze the actual money flow inside of contemporary educational institutions. And what I very quickly realized was those massive amounts of money that are going towards quote-unquote tuition are very seldom going directly to support education itself. In fact, the budgets of universities have become massively bloated in terms of things like facilities and administration. And what is being sidelined is the reason that universities were invented, which is the importance of teachers and students. And as I looked at that, I thought, this is this is ridiculous. We have this new class of super high paid administrators who don't have anything to do with teaching and the professors, the people that do the teaching are getting less and less of the budget and less and less say in how the institution is run. So that means these things, which are called universities, theoretically supposed to be about presenting universal truths, universal wisdom, and creating a context for that kind of truth to be explored. They've now become bloated businesses, the main purpose of which, if analyzed financially, is manifestly something other than education. It's a, it's a massive business concern. And I said to myself, okay, there's no reason for this, especially given the technology we have today that I can use to connect basically almost any student almost anywhere with almost any teacher almost anywhere. So that means we can now have our educational dollars focused quite directly on learning. And if money changes hands, it makes sense to me that money should go from a student to a teacher in honor of the work. And now that almost every major American university is having to convert to an online institution, it just underlined it. It made it incredibly clear. Now everybody else realizes this, I suppose. <laughs> right. Good point. And, and one of the things I read, because I, I was looking at, there are some, some industry blogs, although that's a weird thing to say about universities, but that's still really what they are, where they're just, it's basically education talk, university talk, what's happening in the world of American universities. And one of the reports I read, I forget which site it was, like Ed, Ed Fam something. It's just a university talk site where different professors and administrators and people in that world can talk about what's happening. One of the things that's coming up is a bunch of families are saying, hmm, okay, so you mean my kids in the fall can't come to your campus, but they're going to have all their classes online. Guess what? We don't want to pay the same tuition. Right. And I thought, it's about time. It's about time that the people actually paying for education stand up and say, sorry, that price tag is a little bit too high. We think it's ridiculous. And now in the space of this, people are saying, hmm, yeah, maybe forty, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year is too burdensome for higher education, particularly when it's something that can be done from my son's laptop to your professor's laptop. You know, maybe we don't have to spend 40K a year on that. And so I think, like you said, this is just a, a natural opportunity for us to re-examine our values, 
on a personal level and then on a cultural level as well. Yep. It's hidden, hidden blessings. So you said some things about solitude and the exploration of oneself in silence. Where you were from, you suggested all spiritual exploration begins. So would you say more about that? Yeah, so basically human beings believe that they're bodies and minds. So they believe that we have a story. You're Nathaniel. I'm Richard. We were born in this place. We have these parents. This is our name. We have these siblings. This is what we do in life. So we have this persona. It's like an actor's role. We buy into it. And most people go through their lives believing that that's really what they are. What the enlightened masters teach us is that Au contraire, that's exactly what you aren't, that what you are is pure consciousness. What is pure consciousness? Pure consciousness is something that everybody has experienced. Uh, It might have been in prayer. It might have been in nature. It might have been in love. It might have been while being creative. It might have been meditating. Uh, But basically, it's the moment when the mind is silenced is settled down to the point, Nathaniel, where mental activity completely stops. And once you're sitting without mental activity, you're in pure consciousness, which is your true self. And it is infinite, eternal bliss and peace and knowledge. So people would describe it in different terms based on their traditions. Some would say it's God. Some would say it's Brahman. Some would say it's Uh, the infinite transcendental consciousness. It doesn't matter what name you give it. But that level of pure consciousness means that there are no longer any boundaries on you. You're no longer confined into this six-foot body. You're no longer sitting in this certain city. You're no longer tied by the rules of the earth. You have access to all knowledge, all creativity, infinite bliss, infinite peace, and there's, there's nothing more to gain. Now, once that's established 24-7, then you're enlightened and you've attained the goal of life, which is to establish that pure consciousness and never have to you know, assume a body again. Um, so what my belief is, and it's not mine, it's obviously something that I studied from um, people that are enlightened and, and far wiser than I, but is that this... Pure consciousness, Nathaniel, is the basis of the greatest creativity because it's the home of all creativity. So it's a physical analog would be the quantum mechanical state of physics where physicists tell us that if you go to the ultimately subtle level of matter, that you reach something that is uh, inchoate. There's no physical there there. But it's full of potential. Everything comes out of it. All the universe emerges from it in quantum excitations. So what the Vedantists, the Indian great thinkers, uh, would analogize to is this quantum mechanical state and explaining it in terms of modern science. They would say, just as the universe comes out of that vast ocean of potentiality called quantum mechanical state, then so on a spiritual level, everything that um, is perceived in the universe, everything that's created comes out of pure consciousness and really they're one and the same. And my uh, diagram for this would be imagine a 360 degree circle and the West starts 
uh, the northern point and goes to the south. The, the, the east goes to, starts at the southern point and goes to the north. So the, the west begins with the ultimately gross matter and then works its way down to the subtler levels of matter to quantum mechanical states, at, at which point some blip disappears completely and you have quantum mechanical um, you know, ocean. And then the east starts with uh, you're sitting in pure consciousness and once you're established there, uh, an enlightened being could literally manifest a physical object uh, by the power of thought from that infinite potentiality of pure consciousness. So they're able to move from the subtlest spirituality to the grossest materiality, and then the, the West is going in the other direction. But it makes no difference because they all come to the same point. So what the great physicist would tell us is, hey, once we, there's even a quote from uh, Edinger, somebody who said, Hey, once you get to the finest level of matter, you see the footprints of consciousness on the on the beach, right? It's like, you know, the, you've mm. gone beyond matter. Beautiful. And the only thing that's left is consciousness. So a lot of the more enlightened physicists have become very spiritual uh, because they've seen that once they get to that level where matter disappears, there's something, but it's not material and it's it's infinite and it's infinitely creative and it sounds a lot like what Vedanta is describing as uh, pure consciousness. So on a practical level as an artist, what this means is that the greater your level of settledness and pure consciousness, the more powerful your creation. So my theory of art is um, that what happens when somebody creates something great, a Da Vinci, uh, a Mozart or whatever, is they have access to pure consciousness they hear the music, they see the, the painting, whatever it is, they, they, can, they cognize the, the artwork. And then through mastery of skills on the practical level, paint, brush stroking or note uh, writing there or word writing, they're able to capture that evanescent pure essence of creativity into something that lasts on the material level. Now, when the audience comes to that work of art, uh, he or she brings their own specific level of consciousness to that artwork. So I remember being in uh, uh, being in Paris at the Louvre and, and watching uh, some American, uh, you know, uh, the ugly American types <laughs> looking at a painting and going, "Hey, that's salami, you know. She got her head. She got his head on the platter, you know. I mean, it's you can see a painting and say this is a guy's head on a platter. You could see a painting and see this is." wonderful brush stroking because i have knowledge of painting as a as a technique you could see a mm -hmm. painting as wow that birth of venus looks to me a lot like the waves of consciousness coming up from the subtle into the gross and emerging on the half shell right so everybody's mm -hmm. consciousness is different and it brings to the work of art their own level of understanding that acts as a catalyst nathaniel to the work of art and when the catalyst is added to it, it releases the consciousness that was impregnated in that work of art to the level that it can be understood by that specific audience member. So, um, wow, it really sounds pretty, Nathaniel, when you sing or somebody else has a cosmic vision or somebody else understands a note you hit that's very difficult. Everybody's understanding it differently because of the different level of their consciousness. But if you brought completely deep consciousness to it, you would have the same transcendental experience 
that Mozart or Da Vinci or whoever it is had when they created that work of art originally, if that makes any sense. Okay. That reminds me of a Mozart quote, which is a little bit inaccessible without at least a sense of what you just described, which you might describe as the the ground of being from which art arises. So now this this is probably my recreation of a Mozart quote rather than a verbatim Mozart quote. And I'm not going to speak German anyway, so <laughs> the very best it would be a translation of what Mozart said in German. But he described his capacity to compose mentally, which was legendary, a titanic capacity that he had to compose inwardly before he even put pen to paper. It would be like, for example, in your case as a novelist, imagine if you finished the novel before your fingers touched the keyboard. Mozart composed like that. It's He's an unusual person, obviously, in the history of art. <laughs> but what he described was that when he would complete a composition inwardly, he would then experience, let's say it was a symphony that lasted 40 minutes in performance. Well, he would experience the entire work in an instant. In one timeless instant, he would somehow feel the whole work of art. And he described that experience as one of the most precious experiences of his entire life. And, and that, that, if I could interrupt that's you, that, impossible. That, yeah. And that, go ahead. That, that, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that makes a lot of sense according to the understanding of the Indians about consciousness, because basically what they tell us is that there is no time that uh, when you're enlightened, when you're sitting in pure consciousness, something that's happened in the past and physicists understand this as well, something that's happened in the past and something that will happen in the future are all sitting there. Uh, synchronously. So uh, it's there's no time. So his 40 minutes in an instant, like uh, Mohammed's, you know, traveling through the universe or whatever, before the water fell out of the pitcher or whatever the story was, um, it all makes sense when you understand that you when you go beyond logical thinking, binary thinking, which is the home of time and space, and you sit in pure consciousness, which is beyond the constraints of time and space, then it's meaningless to talk about time and extent because everything can be captured in a moment uh, of awareness. So the saints tell us that uh, if you're meditating, a single instant of perception in pure consciousness is enough to bring enlightenment. So you don't need a, a prolonged space of it. You need the merest, the merest complete stoppage on every level of any mental activity and the complete absorption in pure consciousness. And, and then you've got it. So uh, I, I think what you, what you're describing about make, Mozart makes perfect sense because obviously he's coming from that deepest level and therefore, everything that pertains to his creativity should partake of um, of what enlightened masters tell us about that deepest level, which timelessness is one of the uh, one of the essentials. Boy, that's such an important insight. And and what I saw there is that that insight of Mozart's, which always intuitively made sense to me. It really 
it can't make sense without a a cosmic or philosophical or spiritual understanding of life because music of all art forms is perhaps the one that is most obviously in terms of the way that audiences experience music experienced in a linear sequential beginning middle end in other words the symphony has movement number one or the song has the A section and then movement number two or the B section and the B section comes after the A section. And so for a great musician to talk about a timeless experience of all of a piece of music, a time-based art form, in an instant, it it sort of shines a light on, hmm, there may be a deeper game afoot than we thought. Yeah, and, and Let what, us investigate. What the, what the enlightened masters compare it to is uh, imagine a seed uh, of a great tree. So there's this tiny little seed, but within that seed is all the majestic 500 foot tall, you know, the branches, the leaves, the bark, the roots, that tiny little seed contains all of that. So what that is for them is an analogy that, this pure consciousness, which is infinitesimally small and at the same time gargantuanly huge, you know, because all this is paradox because words cannot get at it, um, contains everything in nothing. So something that looks minute contains everything. So uh, a lot of people think about those moments, you know, people are described before they die when their whole life passes before them in an instant. So there's certain kind of even, even human experiences that we can relate to where you get vast amounts uh, of information in a flash. Uh, but you have to take that and imagine multiplying it by a million or something, but it, it's just this profound illumination of everything instantaneously. Yes. Yes, indeed. Lately, I have started a new avocation, something I've been drawn to do for years, which is to grow cannabis. And for whatever reason, years ago, while I was still in California, and someone who never used it at all, I knew the strangest thing, Richard, I knew that it was part of my destiny to grow cannabis as a person who never used it and had no intention of ever using it. Now I am aware of its connection to our civilization. I am aware that it is the hemp plant, the cannabis plant from which Westerners made the sails of our sailing ships. In other words, there would be no United States of America if there wasn't the hemp plant, because there would have been no sails upon which <laughs> to harness the energy of the wind to travel across the ocean. And I also learned that the canvases, the word canvas is a derivation of the word cannabis because artists' canvases upon which the great works of Western art have generally been painted, again, it's the same plant. And then, of course, also the medicinal uses of it, which were widely known, the first recorded use of cannabis for medical purposes in a sort of Western available derivation goes back to the first century, the Roman pharmacopoeia, where they cataloged all of the plants that they knew on earth and their benefits. And I just had an intuitive sense and also a deep philosopher friend of mine, a very dear soul, my friend Danny Castro, earlier this year, 
told me to grow cannabis. And I had had the intuition to do it also. But he said that, and, and then I was reminded of something that a a man named Father Seraphim, a monk who was in Platina, California for a number of years, who passed away in 1982, and who, if he is finally recognized as a saint, will be the first American Orthodox Christian saint. He said that when he's not with his books, a philosopher's hands should be in the soil. And as you were saying how pure consciousness is analogous to that seed in which this massive potential is hidden. Of course, I'm just starting little seeds in a glass of water and then on wet paper towels and then planting them in little cups of dirt and then watching the seed come above the soil. And and I've also been playing music for them and noticing how much that helps their growth. Mm-hmm. But I can't tell you the profound feeling that moves through me as I do this and the joy in watching and and then the the learning curve as example I killed two or three plants by either too much water or not enough of this or too much of that and so it's this whole sense of of something about the development of consciousness is hidden in just what you said an actual seed beginning and then developing into a plant. And it's been rewarding and and really mysterious. Like I feel a connection to these plants and and what they're doing. Nice. Yeah. It's been very surprising. Very real. I mean, I knew that I was meant to do it for a long time, but the surprise has been in the doing it. The feeling of it is, is, I almost can't even put it into words. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful. It's actually a, it's a blissful quality. It's very, it's bliss in fact. And how that it's stronger than I ever would have imagined. It is a very, my goodness, like in dialogue with pure being somehow sort of a process. Yeah. And the saints talk about like, (laughs) you look at a rose and uh, Maharishi used to say this. He'd say, you look at this rose, it's got these beautiful petals, it's got these leaves, there's these thorns, there's this stem. And he goes, the sap, the pure consciousness in the analogy that's running through this flower is manifesting itself in a thousand different ways, colors, shapes, textures. So just as fundamentally pure consciousness, which is nothing manifest, is able to bring about this manifest universe, which seems to be infinitely diverse. But if we see behind the screen, if we look at the movie and we realize that those images are being projected on a white screen, that really they look like they're real and we buy into that story. But if we really could look at it carefully, we would see that they're, they're light patterns, you know, on a fundamentally white screen that uh, the sap, the pure consciousness is, has this property through Maya of being able to present itself as a diverse creation and to basically because of our spiritual ignorance to have billions of people buy into its substantial reality. But yet our mission is to see behind the, the projected images to see behind the flower to the sap to see behind the grossness to the subtlety, right? 
Yes. Now, here's a here's a dark take on matters. I read somewhere once, I forget where. If you're a betting man, you should bet on Maya because in fact the delusion does seem to win much of the time. So what what do you say about that? What I mean is in relationship to what you just said is that despite the reality that when investigated what arises arises from something much more profound and subtle than shall we say the surface level manifestation how is it that even so that that's the case that it seems normative more or less for people to be caught up in and quite attached to materiality yeah and the point is is that we've lived uh, in my view um through many, many incarnations. So we, it's like school. We keep coming back and learning lessons each time and moving forward to graduation, graduation being enlightenment. The reason that we can understand that this is possible is because we can come into contact with people. And I was fortunate in my life to meet two of them. And if we can't meet them physically, we can uh, meet them through their words uh, in books or through videos of them speaking or whatever we can actually meet enlightened masters who we automatically recognize as such. How do we do that? Because everybody in their environment is raised to their highest level. The mean people stop being mean. The sad people stop being sad, right? Everything gets better, happier, higher, purer uh, when in the presence of an enlightened master. And what everything that they say is true. And is most beneficial for the environment. And you can also judge that just by, you know, a truly enlightened person. If you look at their books, if you look at their what they're saying in a lecture or something, there will be nothing that will ever strike you as being untrue. So just as like you in music or me in writing would listen carefully to a Mozart advice about writing music or a Tolstoy's advice about writing books. Uh, and when we're talking about the meaning of life we can only go to the people who have solved the riddle. And they are very few, as you say. And why are they very few? Because if it's difficult to achieve anything in life, if it's difficult for you to become a great musician or me to become a great writer or somebody to become a great scientist or whatever anybody's doing, a great parent or whatever, uh, if that's difficult, imagine what it is to attain the highest accomplishment in life. And that accomplishment is to completely transcend all suffering and be able to never again face the sickness, the pain, the sadness, the horror, the, you know, all of the human experience that we've all been through. And to know that if we believe in reincarnation, that we're going to keep going through that and keep going through that. You know, I, I remember in college being profoundly affected when the Buddhist texts we're talking about this ocean of samsara where the souls are, you know, flailing around in this ocean under these waves yeah. and, you know, trying to get to a safe shore. And uh, when you really think about it, no matter how smooth your life is gone, you had the travails of birth, you had adolescence, you had childhood pain, you had, you know, first love heartbreak, you had physical sickness, you had depression, you had broken hearts, you had, you know, all that we've been through. Um, to know that there's a way out of that is the greatest possible knowledge to have in life. And so, again, we can't accept that from anybody but somebody who has crossed over. 
And these great enlightened masters are lighthouses to the rest of us. So they, they are beacons on the far shore saying, look, there's a way across that ocean and, and you got to get there. So the reason, as to your point, Nathaniel, of why it never seems to win is because of the incredible difficulty of it. So uh, some people are born in very high states of consciousness and might be able to attain it in one lifetime. Most of us, that's not true. We're just going to, as the school analogy, we're going to go from first to second or from 11th to 12th or whatever, but we're not going to graduate, uh, you know, PhD or whatever the highest level is for a while. But to make progress, to do everything that you can all of the time, to love and be kind to other people, to have your words speak truth and speak kindness to other people, to pay attention to your internal development by praying or meditating or getting inside of yourself and uh, reaching that pure consciousness to try to establish it so that uh, it carries over into your daily life when you're outside of the prayer or the meditation. Um, that is the inspiration that keeps us going until we you know, get there. And then every day we'll get better and better as we move closer and closer to the goal. But yeah, for most people, it's easy to say, look, uh, you know, the evil people are winning, they're getting rich, they're getting power or whatever. But we all know in our heart of hearts that uh, to be evil or to be mean or cruel, no matter how much money you have or how much power you have, when you go to bed at night uh, and you have your dreams or you have a moment of thought and you self-conceive, you're going to suffer tortures from, from the actions that you've committed. So Every action that we take in life is stored in our physical and our causal body so that we carry with us that karma, the results of those actions that we've taken, and uh, those are what determine our, our fate. So if you continuously do bad things and harmful things, um, that redounds to you. Uh, just in the way of a physical ramification would of a ball bouncing off a wall or whatever. So it uh, behooves us to not do uh, wrong and to not build that bad karma and then to do the work uh, internally with the, the prayer, the meditation to uh, work off that karma so that you basically are trying to chip through the rock so that finally the light on the other side shines through. And even if it's just one hole that's been bored, and that light comes through, it will blaze so brilliantly <laughs> that it will be an inspiration for you to continue to dig through that wall. So it's, mm. it's only possible to believe mm. in this if you either A, meet an enlightened master or read about their books or, or somehow come in contact with them and you get inspired by actually seeing what it could be, or conversely, you get so fed up with the suffering that you realize that there has to be something better than this, that I can't be here suffering like this for no purpose, that there is a meaning to life. I am meant to unite with what you would call God, what I would call pure consciousness. It doesn't make any difference what the name is, but there is hope and I've, I've got to be able to strive for that. And so either through suffering or through inspiration on, excuse me, on the high side, then uh, people begin to work towards that. But you can't just immerse yourself in, uh, in sensuous pleasure. That's uh, a stage, but it's a stage that, you know, you drink too much, you get a hangover. You know, you have, uh, you know, you stay up too late, you get tired, right? I mean, you cannot abuse yes. pleasures of the body without realizing pretty quickly 
that that is not ultimate happiness. Happiness is not outside of yourself. Happiness is not a possession, a money, a lover, a partner, nothing like that, a job, a status, right? Because the job can go away, the money can go away, the lover can leave you, the wife can leave you, all that can go away and you're left with yourself. The only thing that it can come from is internal peace. And that internal peace, nobody can take from you. They could put you in jail. They could torture your body. They could do anything to you. But if you were enlightened, it doesn't make any difference because your consciousness does not relate to that body. They can do operations on enlightened masters without anesthetics, and their consciousness is so established in the bliss that they don't need the anesthetic because they're they separate their consciousness from the from the body. So uh, long story short is just, yes, it looks like it on the mass level that ignorance is winning and suffering is like Maya, as you said, is the nature of the game. That's how powerful Maya is. That's why billions of people are trapped in it. But we only need to hear one voice of one enlightened master, and that could reach millions and inspire them uh, to try to break out of that pattern. Mm-hmm. Now, I really appreciate that deeply. As a as an inquiry inside of, of this disposition, this way of looking at particularly art, one of the things that I have found mysterious and which I'd like to explore a little bit with you before we get into some actual examples of pieces of, of artwork, whether film or literature – Here's here's a question that I have, and I have my own sort of intuitive sense of its answer, but I would really like to hear what you've got on it. So one of the things that I've noticed is in the world of art, the, the species of phenomena known as affect, that which affects the feelings. For example, if we consider Shakespeare, it seems that maybe every human emotion, maybe every state of soul, including the very dark emotions and the even insane modes of being, have been explored by an artist as great as Shakespeare, and it seems soul-profiting. So here's what I'm wondering. You and I both know that mm, we're probably not going to wish ourselves to become a schizophrenic in a padded cell. That's not what I wish for myself or for anybody that I love. However, Shakespeare was able to write Hamlet in which he in fact explores insanity. He explores in other plays terrifying eventualities, and yet he does it in such a deep artistic way that I cannot help but come away from those plays without a sense that I have been improved by the exploration. And I've to this day, I still, in some way, I really wonder, how is that possible? I know it's possible, but how? How does he do that? How does the great artist do that? Yeah, and I would say that, and this gets to the crux, I think, of our discussion today. I would say that there's different purposes to art, and there's ones that I would say would be higher and not so high. I would consider mm-hmm. Shakespeare to be the greatest master of the English language ever far and away. I would also consider him to be the greatest person able to express the breadth of human experience uh, and emotion uh, of anybody in history. And yet, 
and you and I may differ on this, I have never been affected by him on a spiritual level as much as I have by people who might be lesser talents in terms of mastery of the language. Uh, this gets to what are you really trying to accomplish with your art? So if you're, tr- let's say one level is at entertainment, like in the big sense okay. of the word, right? So he was an entertainer. Yes. He's writing plays for people that are drinking wine out of leather pouches and shouting at the actors on the stage. He's writing yes. majestic language, but he's talking about kings and knaves and bullies and traitors and cheaters and yes. cuckolds. And, you know, he's giving the masses the breadth of human experience that they're seeing out in the street or they're watching in the parades of the kings and the royalties and the knights and everything. And he's letting the fantasies of the masses uh, go wild and explore this, but all done with superbly majestic language. To me, uh, I felt like people like Shakespeare have already done everything that can be done with the emotions of the human experience. There is no getting beyond Shakespeare if you're going to describe, you know, all these possibilities and permutations and combinations of human experience. So when I thought about what I wanted to do, not that I would compare myself in any way because I have not anything like his mastery of the language, but even if I had, I didn't want to do that because it's already been done. So What I believe is the ultimate purpose of art, Nathaniel, is to create spiritual experience in the audience. So what I always valued about art is if I'm listening to a piece of music and I start transcending, if I just settle down to the point where that composer takes me to a place, like this happens to me with uh, Debussy, where I will listen to something Mm. and I will feel like I'm at the moment when God has just created nature and uh, the morning is waking up and the plants and the birds and the, the dew. And, and I'm just like watching the, the sap of creation opening up life under the influence of the sun or something. So I'm, I'm settling down and transcending to bliss as a result of that piece of music. Or I'm, I'm reading Tolstoy and the prince you know, falls off his horse injured and is ready to die and looks up into the sky and sees the infinite blue and realizes that all this little stuff down here is nothing and that what I am is this infinite blue. You know, I'm this infinite being that has no boundaries up there in the sky. Uh, I'm, I'm being spiritually affected by what I'm reading because it's not like just an emotional experience. It's an experience of consciousness. It's somebody who has created something that has had an experience of merging with the infinite blue or has had the experience of nature is creating the world at at the morning of creation, right? So to me, what I wanted to do was get the audience, the, the person reading the book, to actually, through the power of language, the sounds of the words, this, the rhythms, the, uh, everything about the language of how it's the repetitions, the hypnotic suggestions, everything is lulling that thinking down, down, down to a level where eventually at some point something happens in the book and they transcend or they just get a, a, an awareness of, my God, there is something yes. much greater. There is something beyond just me and my body and my mind and my emotions and all the stuff that they told me was in the script when I got onto this stage called Human Life. 
you know, I'm not just acting this role where I can be happy and sad and depressed and angry. And then I've got, you know, a bag of tricks here that we can keep pulling out of and they're all the same. No, there's something that transcends all of that, which is ultimately valuable. And I have just been turned on to it by this piece of art. So for me, what the ultimate goal was, was not to try to say, hey, I'm going to do the perfect description of adultery or the perfect, you know, sequence of anger or something like that, because frankly, that's not the level that interests me, right? Uh, it's been done. It's been done extremely well and, and it's passed. They, people can refer to it in a million ways. But what I wanted to do, which yes. I think hadn't been done that much, was what if I could take you where these saints say you will go if you turn inward and you finally get beyond thought, if I could have a moment with you where suddenly you would have that experience, then I will have done yes. something very valuable in life because that might trigger you to say, my God, I'm going to change my life. You know, it's like maybe like you were saying earlier, Nathaniel, about money or something. Maybe it's not worth it for me to beat my head against the, the wall. Maybe I'm going to take some lesser money or early retirement and I'm going to like spend time with my family or start meditating or go to church or I'm going to just like start trying mm -hmm. to find something deep and profound in life because life is very short in this body and I want to get as far down the road as I can while I'm in it, if that makes any sense. Absolutely, it does. So to jump in there using some of what you've said and in the context of famous artists like Shakespeare or, say, Brahms. Now, I should say, Shakespeare and Brahms are brilliant geniuses of the affective universe. Neither of them are my favorite, whether writer or composer. But one of the things that I've noticed that I resisted, especially as a younger person, was what I would call emotional truthfulness. And years ago, I did a series of interviews with the teachers in my life who have influenced me the most. And it was a full range from spiritual teachers to teachers in an academic environment to music teachers. It was a large list of people. And all these people were my teacher in one capacity or another. And I asked them all the same five questions. And one of them was about truth. One of the questions was about that. And when I was sitting with my composition professor, he described different levels of truth, which are really true. And one level that he mentioned that I, even when he mentioned it, recoiled away from, and now I realize is much more important than I realized. He said, there's a level of truth called emotional truth, which is simply this. If so-and-so is happy, for him, it is true that he's happy. If another one is sad, for her in that moment, it is true that she's sad. And what I realized about the genius of someone like Shakespeare or Brahms, again, or Chopin, people who are masters of the affective world, what Shakespeare did was he shined a light on the range of inner human experience, which was universal, but also not proper to talk about or even to admit to. The other thing that he brought a great deal of light to, and in a comedic, ingenious way, so he could get away with it, again, if you can make people laugh, you can tell them things that nobody else can tell them, he also shined the light on injustice and how people oppress and abuse each other 
in the normal, ordinary course of business and life. And Romeo and Juliet, I think, is the great masterwork of that, where he demonstrates the price that society pays for trying to coerce its young people into marriages of economic convenience. In fact, it can be soul-destroying. And that was a price that he felt is too heavy. Our young people shouldn't be forced into one or another way of being and even marrying simply because of the economic convenience of their parents and society, when in fact that can destroy their souls. And so he gave us a tragedy in which the two beautiful young lovers almost unintentionally kill themselves. It's not that he wanted to glorify suicide. I don't think that's what he meant to do. I think what he was trying to do is say, look, unjust society, this is the price that your beautiful, innocent young people will pay for your attachment to your old ways of thinking that are outmoded, for your attachment to greed, social advantage, protecting image at all costs, holding grudges. So he wanted to take the things which we don't say and say, now you're going to have to say it. The things that you don't want to admit that you feel. No, let's admit that we feel that. And what I've seen out of that is what one cannot admit to is that of which he cannot be purified. Whereas if one can admit to X, Y, or Z, if I can cop to it, then I can overcome it. Then that can be no longer definitive of who I am. And so, although I'm not an alcoholic, I used to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings because I thought that I was getting some spiritual benefit. And I realized that when these people would say, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic, what they were spotlighting is that which now they can live in transcendence of because they were willing to be honest about it. And so they would tell people who were new to the program, look, this is an environment that requires rigorous honesty. So if you don't want to tell the truth about what you've done or what's going on with you, or even what you're feeling at the moment, then this really isn't the place for you. Because this is a place where the, the currency, if you will, is honesty. And what I believe the genius artists in the emotional territory like Shakespeare. And he also did lean heavily into the political realm, in fact, which was in his day could get you killed. So he was extremely brave about the kind of art that he made. <laughs> the reason that Hamlet is, you know, something's not right in the kingdom of Denmark is because if he had written it about England, which he probably would have liked to have done, that could have gotten him killed. It would have likely been a capital crime because you couldn't write something about the king of England in England. That was illegal. So you had to say it was happening in Denmark in order for it to be legal to do it. But he was putting pressure on here's what's possible in terms of political speech. Here's what's possible in terms of emotional honesty. And what I believe Shakespeare and others like him opened up for the rest of us is the possibility of purifying out of ourselves realms which many people had not even been willing to acknowledge the existence of for far too long. So, for example, I probably wouldn't have been able to appreciate the depths and the greatest profundity of, say, Johann Sebastian Bach if I hadn't, as a younger person, been exposed to simpler folk music, which is a it's a less demanding environment as a listener, but it opens something about me, something about my being, about my soul, about the nature of music, 
which then when contextualized in the context of a work like, say, Box Mass in B minor, which is longer than three hours and contains not only every human emotion, but then the possibility of absolute transcendence, even beyond being, if you if I dare say those words, it's such a great work of art that most people who are expert in the history of music agree that it's the greatest piece of music in history. That's a pretty strong statement, but I don't believe I would have been able to have understood that level of artistry and that level of transcendent truthfulness if I hadn't prior to that been able to learn to be honest about emotional feeling and being able to start saying what quote unquote can't be said, by which I mean, according to societal norms or rules, you can't say this, you can't say that. Well, if we can't transcend those, you can't talk about this. You can't really admit what you're feeling. You can't really admit what they're doing in the darkness. Then enlightenment isn't possible if we're still lying to ourselves, whether it's lying to ourselves on a personal level or on the collective level. Yeah. So, um, you're right, and the way that this happens is that as we progress spiritually, nature spontaneously organizes for us the movement of our energies higher and higher and higher. So as you go through your life, you'll notice, hey, I was at this stage, I was into lots of sensual indulgence, and at this stage, I was into power and success and money, and at this stage, I was into something else. So you will naturally nature will naturally prepare you for higher and higher levels. That said, my yes. belief is that you can never solve the problem on the level of the problem. So no matter how great uh, somebody like Shakespeare addresses these issues, uh, it doesn't change the way despot, despots behave. And no matter how much George Orwell writes about 1984, we're going to live through it, right? So it, you can never change the problem on the level of the problem. Uh, uh, saints say have the analogy of a dark room you can't scoop the darkness out of the room you can only turn the light on right that's the quickest way to mm -hmm. fix it so that the, the answer is and that's what comes back to what i was saying about the nature of art uh at the level i'm trying to talk about is that the answer is not to say didactically hey audience here's what's wrong with you here's what's wrong with society let's go fix ourselves and society right you can't deal with the problem on the level of the problem you can't deal with the mind on the level of the mind so people with this mindfulness and all this stuff right like just make your mind or help your mind or let your mind no you cannot make you cannot use the tool that you're trying to get beyond the ego doesn't want to kill itself. The mind doesn't want to stop itself from thinking, right? Mm -hmm. it, wants to, it wants to persevere mm -hmm. and continue in its ignorance, right? So that's the darkness. The light is a switch that's something different than the darkness. The light is the transcendence of the thinking. Now, your point is correct, Nathaniel, because until you've been prepared to the point where you can sit there and settle down in prayer or meditation or whatever your, your mode is, you're not going to be able to transcend because your mind is going to be running a thousand miles an hour and you won't even want to meditate and, or pray. And you'll just never even be brought to the place where you can start it. So that's yes. the preparation that you were talking about that's necessary. But once you get to the point where you've realized, hey, that's what I really need to do, then that means nature has carried you to the place that you're ready to do it. And at that point, you go beyond what the enemy is trying to say the battlefield is you get out of the battlefield. You jump out of one dimension, two-dimensional reality into a third dimension, right? And when you're at a third dimension, 
you're coming down at the enemy from a level that they don't even know exists, right? That's what pure consciousness does. And what happens then is that nature spontaneously purifies you, right? People say, oh, well, I have these thoughts or I have these emotions or I have these physical sensations when I meditate or when I pray or whatever my technique is. Yeah, well, that's nature purifying you in the optimal way. You could never have figured this out intellectually. You couldn't have said, oh, today I'm going to work on when my mom said mean things to me when I was five years old. And tomorrow I'm going to work on my dad, you know, smacking me. And, you know, next week I'm going to work on my heartbreak from my first lover. And, you know, it, you can't do that because one is necessary to release before the other one can be softened up. And it's infinitely complicated. So you just have to trust that the goodness of God, nature, cosmic consciousness, whatever you want to call pure consciousness, wants you to get there, wants you to evolve, wants you to realize your full potential so that if you just give it a chance and be quiet, shut your eyes and go inward, then when you transcend, then that purification will happen spontaneously. So those stresses will come out. Those biochemical imbalances will become balanced. Those nerves and waves in the brain that are out of sync will become in sync. And the whole beautiful symphony of evolution will happen uh, spontaneously without you having to do anything, which is the beauty of it. Because we're so used to in the West of, oh, I've got to go out there and really tackle this job. You know, I got to break through this wall, right? Well, that's your ego and that's, you know, your individualism telling you ignorance, right? The truth is that mm -hmm. there's something far more powerful than you and that you have to not do anything and sub subsume yourself uh, in it. And then everything will get done for you. And it's that humility of realizing that you are not in control, that there's something much vaster than you. And if you're humble enough to just say, please do it, let me be it, um, then it will happen. It won't happen overnight. And people say, well, why can't I just have it tomorrow? Well, what could you accomplish tomorrow in anything of a lesser sphere? Could you become a professional athlete in a day? Could you become a master musician? Could you become a master novelist? Could you do anything great, even on the practical level in life, without investing years of diligent effort? No. So you're not going to get enlightened, which is the highest accomplishment of a human being, overnight, unless you're a very rare soul who is born on the verge of it, and it's just going to happen effortlessly for you at some point. That's very rare. Most of us are going to have to take a long time and may not even make it in this lifetime. And all we can hope is to advance down the path. And when we're born again, to then be born at that higher grade level where, oh, now we've got better parents. And now we're in an environment that encourages prayer and meditation. And now we don't have abusive parents. And, you know, I mean, we got a whole environment that's conducive to our evolution. Um, but you've got to not fight the, the problem on the level of the problem. I hear that. I do. One of the connections that I've been able to make with respect to that in recent years is between the Orthodox Christian spiritual tradition and the, the world of ancient theater. And I think Shakespeare was like a modern extension of the ancient theater, but they were interested in catharsis. So if you went to an ancient Greek drama, the goal of the playwright was not merely to tell you a story about this god did this thing with this goddess, and then they did this thing over here, and then there was the war. And <coughs> Excuse me. They weren't just trying to tell a story. 
they were interested in leaving the audience with an experience we still use in the West today. We call it catharsis. And the Greek pronunciation of that word is katharsis. And the verb form in the first person would be katharizo, which means I wash. So to experience catharsis is to be cleansed, is to be washed. That was the idea. The idea was if one could bring forward into the theater some sort of an experience. Let's take Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment as an example, which is about what happens when someone commits murder, but it's about what happens in the soul rather than about what happens in the world. It's about what happens inside a person when he commits murder. So what's the the use of that? Well, what Dostoevsky wanted to do was he wanted to tell us, as I understand it, no matter what you have done, there is no one who is beyond the possibility of spiritual transformation. He also wanted to defeat the Nietzschean Superman ideal. That's another side note. But I believe that the reason that it was useful for him to take murder and go into the inner experience of it, and then the guilt in the aftermath of the commission of the murder, in a way that has not been done before nor since, is that he took an experience which is so dark, very far into the darkness, he brought it forward into the light, and then he said, this too can be transcended. Even this need not be a place that you are stuck. That's the reason that I believe he was greater than Shakespeare, because Shakespeare leaves this in the realm of the implicit. He puts insanity on the stage, looking at someone like Hamlet, who is of royal blood, but clearly dealing with insanity. And that was, in Shakespeare's day, revolutionary. He lived in an era where, if you so much as said, I don't like Her Majesty's hairstyle, your head could be on a pike the following morning. So for you to put a man on stage who is of royal blood and he's dealing with insanity, that's an absolutely revolutionary degree of truth-telling. And so what I get out of that kind of artistry, so as a corollary in my life, in 2014, my father was arrested. And he was arrested because it was finally brought to light that for more than 20 years, he had been sexually molesting and or attempting to rape four of my five sisters. And I didn't know that, and nor did the rest of us, until finally one sister came forward, and then she found that the three others had had a similar experience. And so my father was locked up, and now he's doing a double life sentence in San Quentin. Now, that seems like a very sad story on the face of it. And of course, it is. No question about it. Having lived it, I can tell you it's a very sad story. But... What I was struck by was the relief that I felt in my soul when all that came to light. And what I feel that some of this art has done, where the the affective depths of the soul have been plumbed effectively. And I, I think you're right. We don't actually have to redo what has been done ingeniously necessarily. We just have to appreciate it in the right way. But I feel that the necessity of that kind of truth-telling is that So had my father's crime stayed in the darkness, had that not been brought to light, had that not been declared publicly, the possibility of healing spiritually in my own soul and for the souls of my sisters and the rest of my family members, I think would have been lessened. Whereas when that's brought forward into the light, then the possibility of cleansing, catharsis, or Greek pronunciation, catharsis, as facilitated ideally by drama, means maybe 
it's not necessary for those events to really happen. Maybe looking at someone like Nathaniel Hawthorne, maybe if we simply, or Dostoevsky, put those kinds of events on a page and have you contemplate them, it may be possible to obtain some freedom that other people would have had to live through and maybe even be trapped by, like my father was for more than 20 years. And so I think that art offers us the possibility of maybe getting out of something that we never would have wanted to live. Yeah, and that that's the point that I was making earlier about what Dostoevsky was doing was his own father, there's some confusion on this, but as you know, he's probably murdered by his serfs. And after that, yes. Dostoevsky developed his epilepsy. So Dostoevsky is working out in his work, murders everywhere, right? Yes. He's working out, he's working yes. out in his work the tremendous impression that having your father murdered <laughs> and then you becoming really sick as a result and having that mess up your marriage. Um, he's working all yes. that out through his art. And as you say, then he's helping yes. people that have similar things work that out. Uh, I'm not disparaging yes. or belittling that Nathaniel. All I'm just saying is that there's levels of the problem to me, that's like psychotherapy or something where, you know, people that believe in therapy go, let's go in there and get right into that problem and remember what she said to you and how abusive he was. And, you know, it's like it's effective and it helps you. You can spend your whole life remembering all this stuff and everything. But it's not as powerful as transcending the whole shebang, getting completely out of uh, the mental, emotional space and operating from a level where it's like you're bringing a laser to bear on the problem instead of a a needle or something, right? It's like they're operating with a needle to try to dig out the poison or something, and you come in with this gigantic laser and just boil the heck out of it, right? You just burn it away, right? So uh, you might get things, you know, in your prayer session, in your meditation or whatever. You might have a terrible memory, or you might have a huge twitching in your body, or you know, you might go into some kind of vul- I mean, something could happen, right? So this is nature helping you throw it off. But all I'm trying to get to is the point of if you can go to the heart of the solution, the light in the room rather than the darkness, if you can not deal with the pain on the level of the pain, if you can deal with it by jumping the metaf- by jumping the um, the uh, constraints of the problem completely and going to a third element, which is pure, pure consciousness, then you're, you're basically coming in with something that's so all powerful and all knowing that it will help you heal far more profoundly than dealing with it on the level of like a therapy, right? Where I'm reading about this and that's reminding me of what I went through and now I'm really sad. And, you know, it's like, yes, that helps. And yes, he helps. But to me, again, I, I, I really respect his talent and I've loved his books. But at the same time, I find it painful to enter into his world because I'm, you know, what an artist does is they pull you right into their soul. And what his soul is, is it's grappling with all that pain all the time. Right. And it is, um, it's grappling with uh, being the odd man out and being the weirdo and being the freak and being the epileptic and being the murderer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's yes. like you're entering into that tremendously painful world. And yeah, I mean, you're entering into it 
holding the hand of a genius because the guy's brilliant. But to me, there's something that's more sublime. And what I'm trying to get to is, and I'm not saying I'm any, anywhere close to achieving it, but what I aspire to is if you could, I don't want to make you sad. I don't want to make you feel pain. I want you to feel like there's infinite happiness, that there's infinite peace, that there's infinite knowledge, that there's infinite love, that despite everything that's going on in Maya and the world, the worst possible examples of children suffering and diseases and horrors and, you know, all that stuff, if and, and this is a difficult point to get across because people that don't deal on the level that I'm talking about come back to you and say, oh, look how heartless you are. You aren't feeling for the poor bombed Yemenese children or whatever. Right? You know, it's not that. But what the saint sees, what the enlightened being sees is behind that movie of Maya. The, that, that screen is there all the time. And I would advocate that somebody who operates from that level, you know, like a Maharishi who got, you know, 10 million people meditating or whatever and set people like myself off on a lifetime of joy because of what they taught me, um, that that kind of a lighthouse that says there's something wonderful, there's something beautiful, there's something joyous, right? Go for the highest, go for the beautiful, right? Um, don't wallow in the misery, right? And he was always fond of saying, you know, if somebody's suffering, they're sitting there on the gut in the gutter crying, it doesn't do any good to sit down there and, and cry with them, right? What helps is if you give them a hand and pull them up out of the gutter, right? And, and what that is, is to give them a tool that they can get beyond their suffering. And you can't get beyond it, uh, at least very quickly, by operating on the level of the problem, you know, it just, it, 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 it keeps you in the same mode. And that mode is, is like its own prison, right? You're always working within the, those walls, right? The thing is to break down the walls and to have the infinite grace of the universe. If you have the infinite grace of the universe behind you, then uh, life becomes a completely different and better experience. So I will set over against that something from the Christian spiritual tradition, which is contrary, just by way of transition into some sure, sure. specific artistic instances. But there is a scripture that says explicitly, weep with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, it isn't a mourning that wishes, as I understand it, to leave anyone in that state, but the depth of spiritual experience as expressed in the life of Jesus Christ, God become man, is that, and this is where it's quite distinctive from, say, the life of the Buddha or other Far Eastern spiritual figures. Christ was an Eastern spiritual figure, but a, a, a Middle Eastern spiritual figure. He cried when a friend of his died. He took a nap in in a boat when it was time to take a nap, even though everyone else around him was terrified and he asked for food. So we have these instances in his life besides the miracles, besides the, the transcendent expressions of deity on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example, and the many, many, many other miracles of mastery over nature and all knowledge and all wisdom and, and 
perfect love. We also know that he got angry and drove out of the temple the money changers with a whip of cords. So we see that sorrow, we would call this in Christian spirituality, these are called the blameless passions. So a friend dies, he weeps. Now he then raises that same friend from the dead a few minutes later. (laughs) But he still wept, showing us that to weep when your friend dies is a part of the pure human experience in this veil of tears called earth. And then by the same token, when something was radically radically unjust in society and evil, where they were taking the temple, which was to be a place of worship, a place of devotion, and the money changers were screwing over financially by financial dishonesty, the people who were coming in to buy the, the items that they needed for their religious ceremonies, Christ drove them out. And what the Orthodox Holy Fathers say that means for us is that you're familiar with the mala beads of Buddhism? Yep. So in, in Orthodox Christianity, there's something very similar. We usually call it a prayer rope, and it looks quite similar to a mala. And what the Fathers say is that whip of cords with which Christ drove out the money changers, what we're supposed to do is take the prayer rope and drive the passions out of our soul. So it's a it's a use of that affective or what they call insensitive power of the soul, but it is not appropriate to use that power to abuse my fellow man. It's appropriate rather to take that power, turn it inwardly and drive the darkness out of myself. That's the so that's a just a word from the the mystical side of Christianity here. But let's transition into some pieces of art. So there are some some works we're going to look at, one of which is the film Paris, Texas. And then something else we will consider is the, the, the journalistic work of Chris Hedges and then the theater piece, which he re- recently created with some inmates in the context of that, that is called Caged, the play, the movie. If you want, you can go online and check that out. And then a little short story of Nathaniel Hawthorne, Young Goodman Brown. I consider Hawthorne to be the greatest American writer of us all. And so let's start with Paris, Texas. And would you give me your impression of this film, this 1984 European movie shot in the American Southwest? Yeah, so uh, it seems to me that it's uh, a statement of being lost uh, with a metaphor of mutinous um, and then gradually rediscovering the power of communication, rediscovering family, and then eventually coming to grips with your past deeds that had affected other people in a powerfully negative way, and then a self-sacrifice at the end of um, allowing your your ex-wife to be reunited with her child. I'm not an expert on the movie, but that would just be my take. Okay, so a couple of things for me. So I saw it recently, and I was struck by by two things overwhelmingly. First of all, do you remember the cinematography of the American Southwest? Yes. So because I, just a few years back myself, did a cross-country tour on my motorcycle, a large part of that cross-country tour was the American Southwest. And interestingly enough, I can tell you... (laughs) 
that between the years 1984 and 2012, not very much changed about the landscape of the American Southwest. Because I swear to you, Richard, some of those very same tiny little roadside hotels and motels they stayed in in 1984 were still there in 2012 when I rode across the country. <laughs> I swear I, I ate at those same restaurants and they looked at the, I think I, in fact, ate at one of the very restaurants that's in the movie. The very, wow. I'm pretty sure. And so I did feel like they captured the beauty, the authentic kind of austere beauty of the American Southwest and the human attempt to tame that landscape, which is not going well by any, by any account. I mean, you know, America is the richest country in the world. And if, if that's the best we can do at taming a desert, turns out deserts are hard to tame. And I was, once again, by the the lens of that cinematographer, I was just ravished by the beauty of the desert, which has this, I don't know if you've spent much time out in the desert, but to me it has this, there's a a beauty, a power, a majesty, a mystery, which is clearly beyond, well, so I was riding through the desert, right, on my motorcycle, and the desert is very, very, very hot. It is freaking hot. That's not something that's been overtold in movies and television. It is that hot and it is scary hot. And because I was traveling at high speed on the motorcycle, of course, what happens is the air is hitting my skin at very high speed, which causes a fast evaporative reaction that literally is pulling the water out of my body. And I realized if I didn't drink a significant amount of water every time I stopped for fuel, the desert was going to kill me. I thought, my goodness, this landscape will literally kill me. It will suck the water out of me and I will die unless I replace the water. So it was this being met by my own mortality, which the desert offered me. And then when I would find the place where I was going to spend the night, I remember one, one of my most memorable nights traveling across the country. I was... I was at, I think, the Continental Divide, the Rio Grande. It's at 10,000 feet. I rode up to 10,000 feet in the high desert and then back down. And it was freezing cold blackness in the desert because there weren't any lights up there. And it was like I was hurtling through infinity while nearly being frozen like a popsicle to death. And then when I finally got down into this little town... And I stayed in this little motel, which, like I said, for all the world looked like the ones in that movie, Paris, Texas. It was like right out of that film. And they had a heater. And the lady was nice who showed me to the room and I didn't die. You know, it's like <laughs> amazing. I'm totally not dead. I was up at 10,000 feet and the desert was trying to kill me. And then I made it. I'm inside. So that was the first thing that I loved about that movie was just that it showed us on camera the kind of awesome majesty of the American Southwest. And that I, I just, I just dug the heck out of that. True. True. And the desert, obviously so that's is a one power, for- powerful, powerful spiritual symbol, right? The Christ going into the desert, the, the hermits in the yes. desert, um, the desert yes. being um, absolutely empty, like inner silence, yes. the uh, yes. challenge of the desert, as you just mentioned, to the physical existence. So it's almost like you're transported to spirituality just by being there because there's nothing alive there. Ex- and you might not be alive exactly. if you're not careful, right? So exactly. It, uh, 
it's kind of the the opposite of everything that we're used to, which is a whole bunch of stuff yes. to see and experience and all outward orientation. This is like death and emptiness and inwardness and silence and mystery. Exactly. So in my experience of that movie, that was where that movie wins. That's where it gets for me a 10 out of 10. Perfect score. Beautiful, beautiful job at forwarding the desert. And I felt like the desert was the most important and most powerful and most truthful character in that movie. Then, of course, we get into this movie as a family problem movie. It's about a man who's become dysfunctional himself, but then he was also dysfunctional as a father and as a husband. And we learn about that. As he begins to speak, he reveals his inner life. And then, forgive me, I don't think we have to really say this, but, you know, spoiler alert, even though the movie was made in 1984, but I'm still going to say that. So what doesn't happen at the end of the movie that I wished had happened was what doesn't happen is the man does not reunite with his wife and son in a permanent way. What he does is instead he facilitates the reunion of his ex-wife with his son and also her son. So at the end of the movie, the mother and child are together and the inept, incompetent, incapable father is out there just being a man. So he's capable of being a man, but he's not capable of being a father. Whereas in the case of the woman, she's capable of both being a woman and being a mother. And I I wasn't sure what the filmmakers were trying to say about that. I don't know what they were after, but to me, that was where, and I would love to hear your opinion about this. That was where the movie fell short of being a work of masterful genius because it did not complete the circle. What do you think about that? Am I wrong about that? No, I, I hear you. And that brings up another, I mean, this, I think, directly relates to what you're saying. But uh, I remember, remember when you're studying uh, literature in English class in school and you've got, you know, Billy Budd and he's the Christ symbol, you know, when he's, you know, up on the uh, land, on the spars and stuff. Uh, to me, art should not have to be about a bunch of mental symbology that we're all like pouring over like academics and trying to figure out, you know, oh, my God, this this is what Wim Wenders really meant. And, you know, oh, my now I see it. And I mean, if it's not something that is so primordial, you know, that is just obvious to you, that just powerfully affects you, that just leaves you yes. with some changed relationship to life. You walk out of the theater, you walk out of the concert, you walk, you put the book down. If you don't feel profoundly different and better, or at least wiser, move something, you know, I don't want it to be a bunch of symbols and you know, this stands for this and, you know, great Gatsby, the I and the sign really meant, you know, I mean, that kind of corny stuff for me where people build in these little tricks and these little symbols and stuff. I mean, it's stuff that academics really get off on. To me, it's amateur hour. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's like, like I dig, I I hear you right there. I really do. We're going to sit there and build in these little analogies and secret tips, you know, uh, like you look at the puzzle on this, the internet and you're trying to figure out what's wrong. I mean, come on. I mean, art is something that's grabs you and it could grab you by the heart. It could grab you by the mind. If it grabs you by the mind, it's shallower. If it grabs you by the heart, it's deeper. If it grabs you by the soul, it's profound. 
And what, what I want it to do is to grab me by the soul. I don't want to just, you know, anybody can make me cry, right? Everybody's, you know, hates to see heartbreak and hates to see children abandoned. And you can make us cry. You can make us laugh, right? That's entertainment. That's not, that's not art. That's entertainment. That's, that's manipulation of emotions, right? And you can make us think, you know, but that's like mental exercise and we're way too in our heads, right? But if you can change the fundamental way in which we feel, now, not that it's going to last for the rest of our lives necessarily, but if for some period of time you've shaken us and you've made us believe that, wow, I saw that infinite blue sky with him, you know, or wow, I watched Debussy open up creation in the morning. I, I watched the whole creation come to life when he was playing those notes. How did he ever do that? You know? And it's just, you feel like you've been touched by divinity, right? To me, that's what art is about. Yes, I would agree. So in the end of this movie, what I felt was that the filmmakers missed the opportunity to show us that this desire that the man had, that his son had, and that even the woman, his wife, and the mother of the, the boy turned out to have, that is the drive for being a family, the drive for for loving each other in the way that a family is meant to. I think where they missed the mark was that it would have been possible to show us that they could have achieved that. They could have achieved that miracle of a beautiful family unit, as unlikely as that is. He didn't do that. I have been wondering about that myself. Now, one message, which we could take as a, as a beautiful statement, was that, okay, even people who are failures, or mostly failures, and that man, as a father, was mostly a failure, but he did do some good. And so the movie's truthful on that level, because there are definitely plenty of parents who are failures in most ways, but who still do some good and who do make some efforts on behalf of their family, which are noble and beautiful and true, even if they ultimately fall short of realizing the, the role of father or mother in a proper way, they still contribute some good. So that may be the message that the filmmaker was trying to leave us with. I, I'm not sure, but that if that was the the effort, okay, then then I, I take that, and I and I appreciate it. Yeah, and what I would say is, maybe there's the possibility that he just wanted to be clever, and he just wanted to like play with us, and he could have ended it with something that, you, as you say, you and I wanted him to, and it would have been wonderful. And when you've got the choice yes. to make people feel wonderful or not, why not do it? Yes. Right. I mean, I that's, people, see, that's where my heart agrees with you there. People that are that think they're creators and they're so into their own, like, here's what I'm doing. Right. And, and yes. here's the coolness of what I'm doing that they forget that there's any audience out there that's going to be left like walking out of the theater going, God, I'm really sad that the father never got to see the son again or something. You've just spread a massive right. amount of disappointment. <laughs> through people, right? I agree. So, as I completely agree. Sounds, and as much as people like probably listen to what I'm saying and go, "Oh God, you're just going to be producing this this ridiculously, um, you know, facile, happy stuff." I, I don't think it has to be that way. I think it can still be profound and it can still be positive because if you listen to an enlightened master speak 
or you read one of their books, it won't be stupid or shallow, but it will leave you feeling wonderful. So it is possible to be profound, but to also have an uplifting effect on people. It will uplift everybody to the extent that they can be. So if you're super depressed, yes. you're not going to become ecstatic, but you might not kill yourself that night or something, right? So everybody right. gets lifted, right? All boats get lifted, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Now there was my take on it as well. That was my sense. At the end of that movie, it was a missed opportunity. And I theorized that it is an all too European sensibility. And now I'm going to be critical of the Europeans to be permissive with parents who are ridiculously hyper individualistic at the expense of their children. And I felt that that's what I didn't like about that movie is gotcha. that at the end of the day, it was too permissive to the parents. It gotcha. forwarded to nincompoop parents and it could have, the way that Dostoevsky ends Crime and Punishment, which is with a murderer and an ex-prostitute sitting on a couch together reading the gospel. So yes, he goes through all of the darkness, but he went through all of the darkness so as to say, you don't have to stay in the darkness, no matter how dark it got. And what this movie, I thought, Paris, Texas, the breakdown was, they said you might just actually stay in the darkness, kind of. <laughs> What it shows, Nathaniel, back to that theory of art I was talking about, is that you cannot yes. create anything that you are not. You, if you are not a high yes. consciousness person, you cannot create a high consciousness piece of art. So art is, a, is it, art is a window into the soul of the creator, right? And you're, when, yes. you, when you participate in art, you bond with the soul of that creator for better or for worse. So if you've got some very hip, uh, European cinematographer or whatever he called director, and he's going to do this cool thing on you, then that's what you're going to be left with, right? It, it's like that person yeah. cannot go beyond, hey, I've got this cool vision of the Southwest that I can pull off, and I've got this like, uh, you know, stripper, you know, lady at the thing, and that's kind of cool. And I got the kid, and he's, you know, going to be, he's going to play a little game there, and you're going to be with him in it. But he can't take you to a place that he himself can't go. So yeah, uh, artists get can only create get a level that their own consciousness has achieved. And that's why spirituality is vital to art. Because you may be born like a Mozart. You may be so highly um, creative and, and spiritually advanced that at a very young age, you're already tuned into pure consciousness, but most people are not, right? And most artists are not. So Absolutely. you're, you're going to just get and I the would say to the, yeah. Yep. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I would say to the, the movie audiences, if you watched Paris, Texas, do, and it's, it, it's in many ways a really beautiful, magnificent piece of filmmaking. It's quite mystical and very, very skillful, beautifully, beautifully written, amazing, amazing chops. But then I would say after you watch that movie, then watch Groundhog Day, which is a movie in which the main character, in fact, learns to love and goes from starting out as an individual who is successful in the world, but unable to have an intimate and deep connection with another human being in a way that is this right and meaningful and good. And he learns to be able to do that. That's why I would say, if you're going to watch Paris, Texas, then watch Groundhog Day next and, <laughs> and you'll see where, 
Because it, yeah, there you go. Art invites you to a deeper place that way. So the next one I wanted to look at is, so you recently, if I remember correctly, did you read Christopher Hedges' America, the Farewell Tour? I did. So what what's your what's your sense of that? First of all, just like a visceral personal reaction to the to the this is nonfiction now. This is Christopher Hedges. He literally traveled across the United States and immersed himself in much of contemporary American working class culture so as to understand it and sort of bring it to light in a compassionate way. So what did you get out of that? Uh it's very dark, um, very depressing. Uh, not that I got depressed, but like yeah, that was the vibe. And uh I think contained a lot of truth. Uh, he obviously has an angle that he approaches everything with, which is a kind of a, a Marxist, you know, uh, class oriented angle, which is fine. Um, I thought he took a extremely, you know, pessimistic, uh, view of the country, which I think you may have more sympathy for than I do. Um, but definitely brought out, um, the fact that, the powers that be are milking the people to the point where you're basically on this, on the edge of fomenting a revolution because you're, you know, it's like the peasants in 17, you know, uh, 17, whatever it was, 89 in France where there's nothing left to give. Right. So these people have been ground down to mincemeat and, uh, you know, you're feathering your own nest as an oligarch or, uh, as a government, high government official or whatever at the expense of the, of the people's complete suffering in their lives. Um, and that's pretty much what it was. It was just, uh, the, the devil, the devolution of America as we've bought more and more into this idea that money is everything and, uh, we should give everything to capitalists and it's a, it's a gladiatorial battle. And if Jeff Bezos wants to, you know, beat you with his $88 billion, then you, you're going to have 52 cents left. And that's the way it goes. And so it was harsh, but contained a lot of truth. And I like the fact that he'd go and he'd actually meet the people and he, you'd hear the words in their own stories about uh, what they were suffering from opiates or prostitution or, you know, their jobs, yes. whatever it was. So, uh, but yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Well, what I loved about, Christopher Hedge's work in that book and what I've always loved about Christopher Hedge's and as you as you may I think you know this about him he comes from a ministerial background so he is yeah. himself actually an ordained minister yeah, no. now, not in the same tra- tradition that I am and his father was also an ordained minister so he comes out of this now in my view of socialism which is not very popular in academia today is that the best socialism in history or what's another way to say this, the most pure examples of the spirit of socialism in the best sense of that are in fact, American. And my favorite example from American history is Eugene Debs. He was a genuine American hero from the standpoint of socialism. This is something I would set over against Marxism. And by the way, Christopher Hedges, on many occasions, has gone out of his way to say, I am not a Marxist. He can still say, I will be happy to use what was useful about Marx, for example, his analysis of capitalism, which everybody kind of is under 
is able to see was pretty brilliant. I think anybody who's even a capitalist can see that Marx's analysis of capitalism is pretty brilliant. But Hedges, I love that he's not content to be a Marxist. He wants to come from a better place. And this is where I feel that Christian spirituality, which of course does have a history in America in one way or another, although not a very ancient form of it, but the basic ability to be compassionate towards my fellow man is where he's coming from as I understand him. So what he's doing right now and has done for some years is in addition to teaching at places like Princeton, he also teaches in a prison in New Jersey. And he has many, many students who are able to transform their lives, their inner lives. Yes, these are men who are going to be in a cell for many years, maybe the rest of their lives. But because Christopher Hedges is willing to go into these prisons and dialogue with these men and raise them into a sense of literary consciousness to give them the tools to express themselves, it seems to me that he's showing us what and you know, forgive me if this is the wrong comparison, but I think that it's the right comparison. So most of what we know about in the Gospels is the last three years of the life of Jesus Christ. He lived to be 33 years old before he was crucified. And most of what is not in the Gospels is the first 30 years. But the first 30 years of his life is expressed in one sentence in the Gospels. He went about doing good. And of course, the Gospels focus on his ministry, where we learn of his divinity and his moral teaching and his profound, profound, enlightened spirituality. But that one sentence, he went about doing good, is often what our lives should actually look like from day to day. Because not all of us are going to stand on mountaintops, float above the ground, and radiate like a 17 billion watt light bulb so that other people can't even look at us. Like There are people that achieve that, and I'm hopeful that more of us will, in fact, achieve the highest possible realization of our destiny spiritually. But that one sentence about the 30 years of Christ's life, not the last three years, but the first 30, he went about doing good. I feel that Christopher Hedges is a pretty decent example of that. And although, yes, I agree, America Farewell Tour is kind of dark. I believe it's the kind of dark which is just being honest. Like, is it dark that my father molested and tried to rape my sisters for more than 20 years? Yeah, but it also happened. So if I can say, okay, that's what happened. And then the people that he did that to finally said, that's what happened. And then he went to prison and he got to cop to it and say, yeah, I really did do it. And he pled guilty to 30 plus counts. And then my sisters get freed of having to live in the dark that they can't say who their father really is and they have to pretend that he's somebody's not. So what I love about Christopher Hedges is the same thing that I love about that that finally happened in my family where it was overcome was that, okay, if that much darkness is going on, we better we better call it out. We better not sit in pretense and, and wish it away and wring our hands and you know pretend my daddy's not a rapist. Because pretending my daddy's not a rapist, if my daddy's a rapist, just won't do. Right. And I feel like that is where Christopher Hedges is, is winning, by which I, I would call him in, in the Chomsky in vain. Chomsky's whole theme for all of his work, whether or not Chomsky always achieves this is another matter, but his the bar that he sets for himself was in his famous essay, The Responsibility of Intellectuals. And he puts it in one sentence. The responsibility of intellectuals is to tell the truth and expose lies. 
And by the way, if you just do that, they'll be happy to kill you for it. And this is where I believe that Christian spirituality, again, is in the mix. The life of Christ shows us that if you live an absolutely pure life and you tell the truth, what can you expect? To be crucified for that. That's what you ought to expect. In this world, you will have suffering. So it's not that that was the end of the story. Of course, he comes back from the dead in his own being, transcending and the possibility of the transcendence of everyone and everything in his resurrection is, is in fact the point. But you don't get to the resurrection without the cross. You don't get to the resurrection without death. And so what I like about Christopher Hedges is that he's willing to say, look, my friends, look, my fellow Americans. No, it's not morning in America, Ronald Reagan. Not anymore. It's the end. We're at death's door. We're killing each other out of greed. And, and we better admit that that's what's happening, if that is in fact what's happening. And I believe that that is what's happening. I think, though, that every generation, uh, I mean, people tend to look at the negative and focus on it as though it's exclusively what's going on. I mean, whenever people I see online are going like, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, it's quite easy to overlook the millions and millions of people that are dedicating themselves to other people, that are nurses in hospitals and pandemics, that are doing yoga, that are becoming vegan, that are trying to create farms instead of slaughterhouses, that are trying to get gay rights and you know transsexuals. I mean, there's a there's a whole other thing going on here where things oh, sure. that we accept sure, sure. the things that we accept now. Like my mom is like this. She'll go like, oh, it was never like this when I was little and I don't want to tell her, but oh my God, you know, they're still lynching people or whatever, right? So it was like, it's more sure, visible sure, sure, now sure. and the internet has rubbed it in our face that evil is here. But the moment it's rubbed in, it mobilizes millions of people like antibodies to say, that's racist, stop doing it. That's anti-gay, stop doing it. That's xenophobic, stop doing it, Right. And of course, in a Manichaean world on the surface, there's always going to be the, the, the continual pull between good and evil, you know, because intellectual, because spiritually ignorant people are inherently ultimately good, but covered with the mud of ignorance, which is preventing the light from shining through. So we're all creatures until we become enlightened of both, right? We have the inherent divine essence, but it's covered over with the mud that the bad karma, the negative things that we've said and done for lifetimes has accumulated in us and is carried in our soul. So it's easy, I think, to say, oh my God, it's just horrible. Everything's bad. And, and we can all see that because it's, you know, what newspaper ever brings out good news? The only thing that sells is, is the negative, right? So America is rife with negative stuff. Are there wonderfully creative people, beautiful spiritual people, you know, people that are going down to the border and dedicating their legal career to helping immigrants when they could have been making a ton of money as, you know, corporate lawyers? I mean, there's millions and millions of good people out there trying to heal people that have opiate addictions and trying to get funding for clinics. And, yes. You know, so. Sure. Yeah. In many senses, I think the purpose of spirituality, the purpose of suffering and spirituality, you may differ from as a Christian than, than I am as a more of a Vedantist, Nathaniel. But this, to me, the power of suffering is to turn you inward 
towards what you would call God and what I would call pure consciousness. So it's like, oh my God, something horrible happened. They've given me this death sentence with cancer, or I lost my wife or my child or whatever. What's the first thing you do? You start going inward. You start getting this yes, depression. You're getting quiet. You know, you're you're dealing with all the sins that you committed or the evil things that you did, the regrets and everything. Yes. But you're turning inward. And maybe what comes out of that is I'm going to go work for gun rights because my child was killed in a school shooting. Or I'm going to go, yes. you know, work for uh, counseling couples because my marriage broke up or something. Right. It's like the suffering shows us as a hangover shows us the the dangers of alcohol like nature will immediately come back and give us pain whenever we deviate from the the course of right action so it's like america is getting this huge dose of mirror right now look at what you have done right as you said yes, the other day yes. you're the you're everybody in the world thinks you're the biggest threat to world peace right you overthrow governments right. you're evil you spend all your money I read the other day, or maybe it's in his book, but somewhere it says we spend $100 billion a year on intelligence spying, and we spend $65 billion on education, right? So it's, it's like it's becoming <laughs> obvious. It's insane. It's becoming, yeah, yeah, it's becoming obvious to us that we're completely screwed up. But to, do, to have right. that obviousness be shown you, like you were talking earlier about, you know, an alcoholic or whatever. I mean, admitting that you've got the problem is the first step to fixing it. So even though I'm exactly. advocating going beyond the problem to the ultimate, the people that aren't going to do that, it's a value to know that on the surface level, we have corrupt politicians that are in the pay of corporations. We have corporations that are trying to send people back to work in a pandemic so they can stop paying unemployment insurance, right? We've got, like, we're starting to understand the evil, and that's the first step towards getting rid of it by saying it's intolerable. We're not going to accept it anymore. I think this pandemic has done more for the cause of universal health care and raising minimum wage workers' wages and uh, student loan debt and all these, you know, things, these abuses that capitalism has foisted on the average person. It's been brought out in glaring lights because suddenly your job's gone and your health insurance is gone and you can't pay your yes. rent and it's, you don't have any savings. And it, you know, it's, it's like forced you into an absolute crisis. And then you're looking at the systemic situation and you're going, why is it like this? It's not like this in other countries, right? They're treating their people better. They're like you're saying, they're giving them their full pay in Greece, even for God's sake. Uh, so yep. I think he seemed to me like it was all the negative without too much solution. Uh, and I always like to hope that people will tell me, hey, here's what's wrong, but you know, here's how we need to, to fix it. So uh, that's what I was looking for a little bit more, but definitely highlighted the problem. You know, I I hear you with respect to solutions, but where I believe that Christopher Hedges hit a masterstroke of genius is on the level of truth-telling that may be beyond even what he knows he's doing. And here's what I mean. My understanding of American history is heavily influenced by the prophecies that I've read from Orthodox saints. And I have a friend who lives in a monastery on Mount Athos, who's one of my voice students, who's an expert in the prophecies of the saints of our church with the ones in the Bible and then the ones of the many saints since then. And they all harmonize. In fact, they tell the entire history of humanity to the very end. And so one of the things that I know, because holy saints who have perfect vision of 
of God himself have told us is that the United States of America will be destroyed in a series of biological catastrophes. That's actually what the prophecy said. Now, if you read that in the 1990s, you might say that's completely ridiculous. This is the wealthiest society on earth. They're going to do a great job if they ever have any biological troubles. I say, okay, now tell me that that prophecy seems so far <laughs> off the mark. <laughs> now tell me that that was way out of left field. It, and the, the thing that I saw on the economic level from you know the corporatist standpoint is, okay, now tell me that it was a really, really, really great idea that all of our major medications would be manufactured in India and China. Now tell me that it was a really good idea to outsource all the manufacturing of essential medical goods like, for example, N95 masks, etc., to the Far East, which means if you need them in an emergency, you can't get them. I, a friend of mine was telling me online, some people were just railing against India. Fuck India, because they manufacture a bunch of drugs there, which people need in America now, and which India is not shipping because they're not shipping to any place in the world. And my friend was saying, no, no, India, where they're manufacturing these drugs is saying, we have 1.3 billion people and we might need the drugs right now. So no, we're not sending them to you. We're going to keep them. That's just intelligent. Like, would I blame you for feeding your kids if you have food in your house? Of course not. <laughs> you can't be faulted for <laughs> feeding your own children. And the, the people we should be faulting are those who did what it took to make sure that our essential drugs would be manufactured thousands upon thousands upon thousands of miles away from the people who need them because it makes a very small group of people exceedingly wealthy. That's what we should be railing against, not railing against India for that they're keeping essential medication in their country in a time of need. Who could fault them for that? Mm -hmm. And so this is where I love Christopher Head just because he's saying, look, shine the light on us. This is us, everybody. Go do your American exceptionalism now. now. Now, now do your we're number one in the world, you know. And what I think he's right about, and like I said, he may not even know that he's right about this, is that it's it's just about the end for America. The end of the United States of America is near. I think what will probably happen is that it'll be a series of like smaller regional economies that will probably trade with each other in a more fair and just manner. And probably in the transition, you're going to get a bit of a wild west, not unlike when the Soviet Union fell. Obviously, the Soviet Union was a terribly, terribly uh, overbearing state with lots and lots of injustice built in. But the, the fact remains, when that thing fell, because I, I have friends who lived through it, a lot of people who used to have some degree of economic security and safety no longer had any degree of safety and security. So yes, it is an ugly transition, even out of an order which is profoundly immoral. But that order, you know, the normative of the United States of America still does provide things like, you know, some social security, there is some safety net. And if that all goes away, yeah, there is going to be some pain. But this is, I mean, some real significant pain that my loved ones may live through. And I'm very sad about that. But by the same token, I realized that no massive behemoth sort of empire that does a lot of evil and rains hell on the rest of the world. It just, it's untenable. You don't get to do it forever and ever and ever. Eventually the thing collapses. 
And what usually happens is the inward collapse looks a lot like what was being the havoc that was being wreaked on the rest of the world by the American empire is now coming home to roost inside of the United States. That's just what happens in history. And it's sad to say it's happening to my own country to see that roughly 50% of Americans are desperately poor. That's really, really sad. But I think it's important to say, okay, we're, yeah, this, this man, if, if the nation were a man, this man is on his deathbed and it's not likely we're going to resuscitate him. That's just where we are. That's a gloomy so, view. <laughs> but I, I think it's I think it's it's gloomy, but only from one angle. By which I mean, so this is where I think that transitioning into and we can maybe pull vault over the genius of young Goodman Brown here real quick, but the perspective where you're coming from. I think is the right one in a sense by which I mean, okay, so yeah, let's say that in fact, there is a lot of going to hell in a handbasket. Let's say you were to be in India right now. I have never been to India, but I have friends who've spent a lot of time there. And I understand that stepping over unbelievably poor people just right there in the street is pretty much normative. And then you could go into an ashram and you could meet an enlightened master who will change your life just by looking at you. It doesn't mean that you have to say that there isn't poverty in India to also say that there were enlightened people that came out of India. You could say, okay, that's both the case. But then the question is, what do I want my life to be about? Well, if you want your life to be about enlightenment, it seems to me that then when when the earthly game is being lost, and in fact, if the earthly game is beyond redemption, and sometimes it is. In other words, sometimes empires do end. They eventually do, and then it's done. We move on to something else. But the spiritual priority need never be lost, because my sense is where you're coming from is a place that's sufficiently durable that no matter what, if your country is winning, if your country is a just and fair, merciful social order, or it's coming to the end of its run, or it's somewhere in between, you can still say, but my priority is enlightenment. Yeah, my priority is enlightenment. If you think about it, a nation is the collective karma of all of its people. So a nation is like a giant ego, and the ego on an individual level is what's preventing you from being enlightened uh, individually, and the ego of the nation is what's uh, preventing the nation from achieving whatever greatness a nation could achieve collectively. So this is our collective karma. This is not just something that a few people have done to us. People may think that. But they got other people to buy into it, right? The poor people wanted to be rich or or the racists wanted to be racist and they didn't care if the corporatists took all the money as long as they got their guns and their hatred, right? So everybody made a bargain with this devil and their collective karma is what what we have become. Brilliant. A nice allusion, my friend, to young Goodman Brown, which is Nathaniel Hawthorne, an early American author who lived in the the early days of our nation, he saw, okay, yeah, then it was a young nation and we're pretty much winning economically, but unfortunately we've made deals with the devil. And now that's what young Goodman Brown is about. It's about nice looking, successful, clean cut, happy-go-lucky Americans have in fact been in league with the devil all along, whether or not they all admitted it in, in public. But now... Now are you going to pay the piper? Now the devil has come to collect on your soul. And yet 
So this is where I'd like to transition into your work because I feel what your work is about is an invitation that is, like I said, durable. It's perennial. In other words, there is no time, no matter what is happening, there is no time in which enlightenment cannot be one's goal. So what do you what do you what do you say about that, Richard? In a time where, okay, so there's clearly upheaval going, things are changing. But what what is your invitation, or how does the invitation of your work work in the direction of enlightenment, no matter what is going down on Earth in a literal physical way? Yeah. So it's the it's the awareness. It's it's saying I'm going to approach through this piece of literature that I'm going to give you. I'm going to approach enlightenment. So I'm going to see how somebody gets enlightened, or I'm going to meet somebody that is enlightened and get the lessons from them. And what what this is, is a real realization, a recognition that uh, you are not your body, your mind, your persona, as we started with. And extrapolating from that, you're certainly not your family your city, your nation, your world, right? Your universe, right? So as hard as it is for people to believe, what all that we see is, is a projection of our own state of consciousness. So my analogy is you go into a bank, there's a little child in there, there's a bank robber, there's a security guard, there's an old lady, there's a cashier, there's an owner, right? Mm -hmm. All these people are looking at the same bank and they're seeing completely different things. The child is just in awe of the chandelier. The security guard's paranoid about the guy with the mustache. The bank robber's casing out the joint. The cashier's worried about her boyfriend, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. it's not the same world to all of us, right? The world is as we are, right? We see it through the colored glasses, which are the, the coloration of our soul. And, you know, what you're seeing out there, this may be too bridge too far for most people, but uh, it's what you're seeing out there is literally a projection of your consciousness. When you're asleep in dreaming, you don't have that world. You have an invented world, right? And none of those rules apply. When you're in deep sleep, you have nothing, but you still exist, yes. right? When you're in an altered state of consciousness, you know, you have, you've taken a drug or you're drunk or you've, you're in ecstasy or something, then something completely different is happening. Now, the world is not the same in those different states of consciousness, waking, sleeping, dreaming, right? And deep sleep, it completely goes away, as we said. So clearly, yes. it's not out there. It's you. The saints compare it to a spider and its web, right? The spider spins the web out of itself, right? The web of yes. the universe, the web of what we see is coming out of our own selves and is the essence of what we are. So, so there is no fixed out there, right? There is no fixed, it's ugly, it's bad, it's this, it's that. An enlightened being is not a fool, right? He's not the fool on the hill that the Beatles sung about Maharishi, right? He's not uh, somebody who's so blissful that they're not aware that there's suffering in the world. What they're seeing is what's behind the image on the movie screen, right? Shining through everything is infinite light, right? And if you can see behind that sufferer, you see the infinite light that they are and you see their potential. So a saint does not look at you and see you as you see yourself because 
you see yourself from your limited suffering consciousness, and they see you from their unlimited God consciousness, and they see you as this gift, this perfect joy, and you see yourself as this limited, you know, hunk of dirt or something, right? So it's a long way of saying the world is not out there, it's within you. So what my book is, my books are, are as an invitation to say, let's go on a journey and find out what it would be like if we could look at this world through the eyes of enlightenment. And let's give you the hope and the process. So let's teach you what this hero is learning as he or she is going through this journey, as they're traveling in search of enlightenment, as they're meeting an enlightened master, as they're getting instructed, as they're going through the final stages of enlightenment when everything is being sucked up to the highest chakra and all of the, you know, even the, the, the great collective memories of humanity stored in the unconscious are being uh, pulled out of you to uh, the extent where you were left, com- you know, tabula rasa, complete, pure, infinite being, which nothing can impact, with nothing can change, which nothing can harm, which nothing can hurt. Uh, let's go on that journey together. And that's, uh, and, and I'm trying to do it in fiction. So I keep you entertained as we go. Hopefully the language is beautiful. Hopefully the descriptions and the characters are interesting and lovely and you're, you're getting some pleasure out of all that. But while you're enjoying the show, hopefully, and this is not my wisdom. All I'm trying to do is take the wisdom of the enlightened masters and very humbly say, to the best of my ability, which is very imperfect, I'm going to try to give that to you in this story, and I'm going to try to use their words as much as possible verbatim so that the, the, the wisdom that a teacher gives you in, in that story is the wisdom that they would give you if you met them in, in physical life and uh, try to inspire you to whatever level possible to pursue that goal yourself. That is beautiful. That is, that's remarkable. So just to lean on this. So you do feel that as artists, if we are artists who have been given some degree of insight, some perspective, some enlightenment with respect to the meaning of life and what we're here for, you believe that it it is possible that we can utilize art as a kind of an invitation out of delusion, as a kind of an invitation out of selfishness, as an invitation into a truer, into a truer way of being. Very well said. Very well said. And the beauty itself is a message. Like say your music, Nathaniel, if it's beautiful and transporting, just the fact that somebody has had X number of minutes of pure beauty, right? All of these things coalesce into one, right? So the you could call it beauty, you could call it love, you could call it light, you could call it peace, right? Words don't apply, but that experience where they're no longer thinking, they're listening to you singing or playing or whatever, and they're just yes. being, that's getting them there, right? So that's our role as artists is to the extent that our talents allow us to and to the extent that our own consciousness allows us to, we should use the skills to paint the picture, sing the song, write the words, write the story that will allow people to have the experience of that pure beauty, that light, that peace, that bliss, so that at minimum, 
we gave them a little oasis there in that desert of suffering, right? We gave them some palm trees, some coolness, some dates, you know, some fresh water. We gave them a little oasis there in that life of suffering. But at an ideal level, we completely took them out of the desert and got them inspired that they don't want to be there anymore. They don't want to be in that suffering heat anymore. So beautifully said, beautifully said, man. May I read a quote from your magnum opus, Remembering Eternity? Oh, thank you. Okay, so now these are the words of the man I'm speaking to right now. So if you're listening, please understand, this isn't me, this is Richard. This is a quote from Remembering Eternity, his massive, massive, isn't it the 11th longest novel in history? Is that correct? Correct. Yes. So, and I commend that work to anyone who's who's interested in reading not only great literature, but great literature that has a perspective that transcends the merely artistic or the merely literary realm. So here we go. Art, Schuyler saw, had the same high purpose as the traditions of spirituality. To remind oblivious humanity of its purpose on earth. To arouse in it the desire to find the way back to the garden. To inspire it with such visions of paradise that the pursuit of anything less came to be seen as odios. He strongly felt the perversity of limiting the goal of art to entertainment. The masterly craftsmanship of European cathedrals may be beautiful, but the beauty is meant to inspire the faithful with thoughts of the infinite and eternal. Art, he believed, ought to bring spirit into materiality. Dull stone became majestic sculpture. Common words united to sweep up their reader to a place sublime and blissful. And catgut vibrated like the sounds of creation. Great art perfectly symbolized enlightenment. In such art, spirit vibrated within matter. Matter, the elements of the physical world, is shown by supreme artists to be but a diaphanous veil over omnipresent spirit. They use the objective forms of their art to reveal the essentially non-objective reality of the universe. Richard, thanks again so much for our conversation today. I really enjoyed it, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for having me. Bless you. Absolutely. Before we go, is there anything that you'd like to promote? Now, your links will all be available in the show notes for anybody who's listening. Richard's material can be purchased at a number of places, and we'll link to that. But is there anything you want to tell people about or anything you want to promote before we finish here? Oh, thanks. If people are interested in the work, uh, there's a couple of different types of of books. Uh, The Whisper of a Saint is the story of an American who goes to India and finds his enlightened master uh, in the Himalayas and eventually attains enlightenment. Lucinda is, I would say, comparable to a female version of Siddhartha. Uh, the story of a life of, uh, in this case, a woman who is born very special and also at the end of the book attains enlightenment. And remembering eternity that Nathaniel referred to is more 
on a practical level, very long series of nine books, um, which is tells the story of somebody who lives through the latter half of the 20th century and tries to recapture the innocent bliss of childhood that we've all known, those moments when your spirit just filled up the whole room or you were perfectly tranquil and quiet and you felt you know, the universe moving within you, those times when nothing could be improved upon, when there was timelessness. Um, this, the hero Skyler has fallen in love with that feeling and tries throughout the course of his life <clears throat> making mistakes this way and that way but always vectoring towards uh, finding finally a, a way of attaining that that paradise of childhood and making it permanent and enlightenment. So that's more of a, um, a 20th century story of that. Uh, but uh, yeah, all of them are available on Amazon. And Nathaniel, thank you kindly for, for putting those links. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks again. And I look forward to talking to you again soon, my friend, God willing. Thank you so much. God bless. Okay, my pleasure. Bye for now.